The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the New Yorker journalist Lawrence Wright, who's already well known for his book, The Looming Tower on the History of Al-Qaeda and the Run-Up to 9-11. His new book is another hot-off-the-press report on the state of America. It's called The Plague Year, America in the Time of Covid. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you, Sam. I want to start by asking you about the peculiar difficulties as a reporter in approaching a book like this, because you're competing in some ways, aren't you, with that much more nimble thing of daily journalism and weekly journalism. How do you write a book that is so much about current events, about a continually unfolding situation, and find a way of bringing something new? Well, you know, it was a challenge. You're right about that. But when my editor asked me to write a big piece for The New Yorker, I thought about how it had touched every aspect of our lives. The economy, our health, race, class. You couldn't name an aspect of American life that hadn't been altered in some way by this. And so I thought the best way of going about it would be to look at different institutions that embody those aspects of our society, like Wall Street, the White House, and so on, and find emblematic characters inside them. I couldn't deal with the fact, the onslaught of daily journalism. But on the other hand, what was really intriguing to me is how much daily journalism missed the story. You know, for instance, development of the vaccines. You know, the the story in the daily press was all about mRNA, which is a delivery mechanism for a vaccine. It's not the vaccine, but it was represented as being the vaccine. And the vaccine was actually invented by Barney Graham at NIAID, the Dr. Fauci shop, and Jason McClellan. It's a huge breakthrough. I don't know where we would be because all of the other vaccines have stumbled along the way, but the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which they invented, have rescued our country and your country from being something more like India. And it's astonishing to me that that was escaped the notice of the daily journalists. Yeah, Barney Graham, who emerges as one of the real heroes of this book. Yeah. He's not, at least to me or over here, a really well-known character. Did you kind of catch him early? Were you, was he on your radar from very early on? <laughs> well, actually, before the pandemic, I was working on a novel called The End of October, which appeared in the middle of the pandemic in April of 2020. And it was about a, you know, hypothetical influenza. It's pretty much like what's happening in India right now. It affects the whole world. And I had, when I was doing my research, I ran on to Barney Graham. And he'd had more time on his hands, I guess, back then. And he helped me invent the virus, you know, a hypothetical virus that would pass muster. And then as the author, I had written myself into a plot problem. I had to cure the virus that Barney invented. So he helped me develop a vaccine for it. And I had no idea at the time that I was working with maybe the greatest immunologist of our era. And uh, anyway, it gave me a certain authority in the novel that I would never have gotten otherwise. But I already knew Barney. 
So I went back to him. And so early on, I was in on, you know, the development of this vaccine. It was a really fortunate uh, event for me. Kind of amazing. You've also got, I mean, there's another personal connection, which I found kind of extraordinary. When the H1N1 swine flu variant was yeah. spreading, there's a story you tell of your work as a reporter where it looked like you could have been responsible for stopping a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, you never know. 1976 is the year we're talking about. And that was the year that H1N1 killed a young recruit at Fort Dix, New Jersey. His name was David Lewis. And I was living in Atlanta, which is where the CDC is. And I wanted to write about it. It was H1N1 was the strain of influenza that appeared in 1918 and killed between 50 and 100 million people. And people in public health had always dreaded its return. And here it was, it returned. So I went up to Fort Dix to write about it. A number of, you know, like 200 other army recruits were ill with influenza, some with that strain, some with another, but no one other than David Lewis died. But, you know, the question was, if this gets out of Fort Dix, would we have another 1918? And if that's the case, if that's what you believe, then we have to inoculate everybody as quickly as possible. So I was talking to the environmental health officer at the fort, and I mentioned I had spoken to David's mother, who was a nurse. He said, did she tell you about that pig? <laughs> what what pig? Oh, some pig David ran into. I don't know the story. I thought, whoa, if he got it from a pig, that's different from being, uh, you know, a human disease. Suppose, you know, he got it from a pig and he was the only one sick enough to actually die. But the, the disease never became transmissible enough to be able to escape the confines of the fort. So I met with David's fiance, this charming young woman who was a nurse and a pilot. They were going to go into the mission fields uh, when he got out of the service. And that night they ran into the pig was over the Christmas holidays. And they were driving from upstate New York to Massachusetts where David lived. And the snows had closed the roads down to a single lane. And they came upon this big pig. The girlfriend said it was like 200-pound pig. It had fallen out of a truck, evidently. And David tried to nudge it with the car, but it wouldn't move. So he got out and grabbed it by the ears. And the question was, did the pig cough in his face? You know, if that's when the moment came when the flu passed from pig to human, then maybe we didn't need to get inoculated. And so we went from farmhouse to farmhouse trying to find the pig that had been in the road last Christmas. <laughs> and, and people knew about it. It was, it was a small community, and, and we found the pig. I found the owner of the pig. It was a house pet, and uh, he had been injured in some railroad accident, and he was propped up against the refrigerator in one leg, and um, he was not happy to learn that his pig might be the source of this disease, and hundreds of millions of people were going to have to get a shot because of it. And I said, look, all we want is a little blood from your pig. And I'll send it to CDC. They'll determine whether your pig had the flu or not. And um, he, he said to this young woman, 
Honey, I know you. I know your family. I know where you live. You screw with my pig, I'll burn your house down. <laughs> so I said, wow, welcome to epidemiology. And uh, anyway, I finally talked him into getting his vet to draw a little blood, and we sent it to the CDC, and the pig had never been sick a day in his life. So 26 million Americans got inoculated, uh, hundreds of them. Uh, got Guillain-Barre syndrome, 25 or 26 people died, and the inoculation campaign was halted and Gerald Ford lost the election. And so there were a lot of things that were in the balance uh, that had the pig been sick, history might have changed. Amazing pivot. Yeah. Now, you, you know, a virtue of a book that's over daily journalism, I guess, is that it can take the long view and it can probe the historical background. So, and one of the things that you talk about, you know, you just mentioned the 1918 outbreak, which is sort of fascinated me, is that you describe how a sort of task force, I think it's called Howard Markle, as your yeah. your guy, goes and digs up all of the details of the 1918 outbreak in America and finds out it was very, very similar. You had anti-masking groups, you had a right. politicised... I mean, how much was that... The lessons that he discovered, how, how well were they applied and how widely were they understood? Well, what really struck me when I was working on the book, I would ask my public health as experts, are we any better prepared than our ancestors were for 1918? And the answer was no. You know, if we are faced with a novel virus that we've never seen before and we have no cure for it and we don't have a vaccine, we can only do what they did in 1918. And they stumbled into the practices of social distancing and masking and so on that were the only tools. A century has passed, and we're still doing what they did in 1918 and, and still disobeying, being as difficult to work with as possible. But without those tools, we would have been a lot worse off. And what Howard and his colleagues did was they went to all the major American cities, and there were different outcomes. New York versus Philadelphia, versus St. Louis, versus San Francisco, and they all had different procedures. Just as in 2020, when federal government in the U.S. was as chaotic as it could be, but let all the states take control, there were 50 different experiments about how to deal with this. And it was actually more than that, because every city was a sort of entity to itself. And so those cities that imposed lockdowns quickly, that imposed mass orders and so on, they did far better. Hundreds of thousands of lives were saved, but also many were lost because the authorities didn't take their responsibility seriously enough. Now, in the, in the reckoning of this book, you identify, you say, sort of three points of failure, which are how it went so badly for the states. Can you briefly kind of outline what those three pivots are, as you said? Well, to start with, we, we got a late start because of China. There's no excusing the behavior of the Chinese. So we didn't, to this day, never got any virus samples from them, which are used to start the testing. So it wasn't until the first victim in the United States occurred in Washington State that we even got off the starting line. But that was a problem. when We didn't get into China to examine what was going on there. And had we done so, we would have found out very quickly that it was a human communicable disease and that it passed through aerosol. In other words, it passed not just in droplets. And 
Had we known that, we could have prepared for, for instance, masking early on. Do you think parenthetically on that subject, I mean, you have a chapter on the origins of the virus and you're pretty kind of, I wouldn't say you leap to a conclusion either way about whether it was a lab escape. Do you think we'll ever find out? I think we will. I mean, there's news out recently that people in the Wuhan lab were ill, you know, in early December, late November, and went to the hospital for treatment. Well, an honest exploration of the origins of this virus might turn up some uh, serum samples from that uh, experience, for instance. Uh, That would be a very telling evidence whether or not this virus came out of a lab or not. It's Chinese behavior that rouses the suspicion. Were they more open about all of this? I would be less suspicious myself. But the constraints that they've put on the international community in terms of trying to find out where this virus came from are burdensome and obfuscatory. You know, they are behaving as if they're hiding something. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But we can't know until we get a clear opportunity to find out. Now, so, sorry, I derailed you slightly there with the, the Chinese parenthesis, but you said that there was a second point of failure when the virus had made landfall in the States. What was that? The testing was disaster. And it's heartbreaking, honestly, Sam, because when I was a young man, a young reporter, and I was doing stories out of the CDC, I looked upon it as a kind of noble institution. You know, the people that worked there were ingenious They were courageous. They would go off to these hot zones that I wouldn't want to get close to. You know, I just thought it was a spectacular organization. And to see it fall so low is heartbreaking. And the more you find out about the testing fiasco, the more disastrous it it is. The people that were creating the test knew before they sent it out of CDC headquarters that it would have a 30% failure rate. Well, it turned out to be far higher than that. But they knew it was a flawed test. It's, it's, it's impossible to get beyond that. You know, that they, had everything gone smoothly, it still would have failed. You describe an immunologist, very distinguished immunologist or, or virologist, doing a kind of tour of inspection of the CDC's yeah. labs and finding them, you know, you said if anywhere else they would have been shut down immediately. Well, Why was it in that state? Was that just underfunding or political control? What, why did it end up like that? I think it's hubris, Sam, because in that particular instance, uh, the person you're talking about is Dr. Timothy Stenzel from the FDA. And the FDA was so outdone with CDC and it's how laggardly it was in terms of producing this vaccine long after the German vaccine was already produced and circulating around the world. So he went to CDC. He arrived on Saturday and they wouldn't let him in because it was a weekend. And then finally on Sunday, he's allowed in, but he's not allowed into the labs. And, you know, bear in mind the ticking clock. This virus is rampaging across the United States. Anyway, I I won't stop there, but it's infuriating. And so finally he gets in. And what does he find? One of the labs is processing the test. In other words, people sending their live virus drawn from their blood in the same room where they're making the test. So the contamination of live virus getting into the test was really inevitable because this DNA is it's an RNA virus, but as scientists say, sticky. 
it floats around. It's very difficult to contain. And so that's why you have to have such strict procedures, cleaning everything at night, ultraviolet lights, because DNA is promiscuous in terms of its ability to move around and, and, and apply itself to things. And it got into the test. And of course it would. That's why you don't even do it in the same building. And so that's why the FDA was so outraged by what is such a sophomoric mistake by what was supposed to be the premier public health institution in the world. And the final catastrophe was the masking. Early on, we should have known. And had we been able to get to China, we might have known uh, what the Chinese knew, that masks were a way of blocking the transmission. But there were studies. One of the problems is that from the beginning, scientists looked upon this as the flu. That was the paradigm in their mind. The flu is spread mainly by droplets, sneezes, that kind of thing, where you know you actually have discharges. This particular virus is more like an aerosol, like measles or something like that, which is you know, it gets in the air and it, it, it moves around through air conditioning systems and so on. It's, it's like a cloud. If you think about when you're talking in the cold and you have a cloud of moisture coming out of your mouth, if you imagine that to be viral particles, that's more like what the COVID-19 virus would be like. A mask would stop that. But it has to be a pretty good mask. You know, it has to cover fine droplets. It's not just bandanas. But finally, the CDC and the public health authorities agree that masking is a good idea. And this takes place finally in April and the peak of the fatalities in New York. And the president makes a presentation. And, you know, he's supposed to be the salesman for this. And he said, you know, and you can wear it. I'm not going to wear it. But, uh, you know, you, you can wear it. It might be good. People say it's good, but I'm not going to wear it. So he became a saboteur. And, uh, you know, he has a 30 to 40 percent of Americans who voted are, are Trumpistas. And so that whole contingent, the anti-mask thing, had he willingly put on a mask. I mean, this is a man that even went to a mask making factory without a mask. There's zero irony in his reaction, but that was the cheapest, the easiest, the quickest remedy that we had was to wear masks. And uh, it's been very hard for America to fold into that mentality. We've done a much better job since Trump left office, but that was strike three for America. I mean, there's a sort of very broad brush consensus that's Trump is very substantially to blame for how badly coronavirus went in the States. Obviously, you, you know, as you describe, see him as bearing a lot of it. I mean, how far do you think that goes? I should say there were federal plans. Public health people had been doing tabletop exercises. There were books to pull off the shelf in case this happens. So there were plans. Were they enacted? No, they were not enacted. And, and then not only were the plans that were available not put into effect, the possibility was undermined when, when the president decided not to take charge, to throw it into the laps of 50 states, who totally unprepared. I mean, for instance, the purchasing. There was a national storehouse which was totally depleted 
at the beginning of this because through several administrations, not just the Trump administration, uh, we had failed to resupply our mask and, you know, our ventilators and all the vital equipment that we need for such a contingency. So there wasn't enough to go around to start with. And then the president said to, in a call to governors, we're behind you. And what I mean by that is that we'll support you. But what I mean by that, and finally got down to, you do it yourselves. You buy this stuff. And Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, told me that she realized that there wasn't enough personal protective equipment in Michigan for the next shift. You know, they were out. And now they have to find a way to supply and protect the you know frontline workers. So she, as did every governor in the United States, they start making calls to China or to the. They're making calling exactly the same people. And you know, I need I need three million masks. Okay, what are you offering? Well, what's the going rate? Well, New York just bid so and so. So it became like eBay. They were governors bidding against each other instead of a single purchaser, which would have been the United States. There were 50, and not counting the territories, everybody was bidding for exactly the same amount of equipment. And then when they bought it, it would likely be confiscated by the federal government uh, for its own supply. And this happened repeatedly, like a governor of Massachusetts, he bought millions of masks from China and came into the port of New York and it was seized by the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency. And the next time he got the uh, owner of the New England Patriots football team to fly his personal plane to China, fly back to Boston, and then they hid it from the federal authorities. And this was something that was repeated by other governors. They actively hiding personal protective equipment from the federal government. To, so, I mean, that that's just a story. But it's oh, weirdly, God. it's a kind of dream, isn't it, of, of the sort of secessionist side of the American psyche, isn't it? <laughs> really, Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island, she kept pleading for equipment for, I mean, from the federal stockhouse. Yes, it's coming, it's coming, you know. And finally, the truck arrives. <laughs> it was empty. They sent, they sent her an empty truck. And uh, to me, that was the moment where it was like a defining moment in, in terms of the role of the government, which had actually turned this critical mission into a form of patronage. You had to beg the president to give you equipment, as some governors did. They were in, and Trump was asked, you know, what more do they need to do uh, in this time of crisis? And he said, I want them to be appreciative. That was the... Uh, the response of our president at a time in national need. There's a lovely quote you have from somebody, I think, saying that it would be the equivalent of after Pearl Harbor, the the president saying, what did he say? Is it like Connecticut, you have to build your own destroyers. (laughs) Yeah, this is Governor Inslee of Washington State who said, this would be like uh, the president in in December 1941 after Pearl Harbor saying, good luck, Connecticut, with building those battleships. We're behind you. That is, a, it was a pretty close parallel. But that business of the role of the state versus the federal authorities, the different governments, there's a sort of thread running through this book, which isn't all man versus virus, but it's it's Hayek versus Keynes. And you talk about, which I think is one of the most intriguing parts of this book, you talk about the way in which you think that an event like this is going to reshape 
the way America runs. I mean, I think you actually, even early on, you say perhaps COVID-19 was the force America needed, which will seem quite a controversial, bold statement at least. What do you mean by that? And what do you think the transformation is going to be? Well, the United States has been in a decline relative to other nations in the world for a long time. But, you know, the inside, the core of of the United States has been suffering. And I think that the thing about a pandemic it's like an x-ray into our society. And you can see all the broken places. And I think it's been shocking for many Americans to see how poorly we behave during this time. And Sam, in some ways, it offers you an opportunity because once you know the truth, then you can set about trying to change it. You know, your question makes me think about, I had several conversations with a medical historian, Gianna Pomata in Bologna, And I asked her about parallels in history, and she pointed to the Black Plague. Now, in terms of mortality, there's no comparison. I mean, that killed a third of Europe. But what the plague did in the Middle Ages was bring about fresh thinking, because everything, for instance, with medicine and so on, failed. It was a colossal social failure, and it opened the doors to the Renaissance. So there is the possibility that fresh thinking, for instance, having to do with the environment, it was radical, I think, in some ways, that we suddenly saw a world with less pollution in it. The skies were clear. I remember the pictures of the Himalayas, for instance, you know, or Los Angeles, crystal clear air. You know, I think it reminded me of uh, that picture of the earth taken from space, which was such a motivating thing for so many people to become environmentalists. Maybe something good could come out of this. But of course, what we're left with right now is just picking up the pieces uh, of economies are coming back and so on. But there are going to be changes in our societies that'll be profound and enduring. And the question of cities, for instance, uh, they're going to be, you know, the workplaces and so on. I think that is, uh, in many respects, permanently altered. There's also, I've, I don't know if this is true in the UK, but a lot of my friends in the US, they're sort of afraid to come out of the cage. And there's something of having been locked up for a year, essentially, you've come accustomed to a different way of life. And in what ways that will manifest itself, I'm not entirely sure. It could be that in a few months we'll be back to 2019, you know, but I don't think so. I think that there have been big changes in, in, in our society, but also inside ourselves. What do you make of the way in which masking, which certainly in the period you describe in the book, which runs up roughly to the end of, end of Trump's term, the election, it's a straightforward public health measure, but it's become part of the culture wars now, hasn't it? I mean, a a political determinant as much as anything else. What do you make of that? And where do you think that's going? Well, I think without the chief protagonist, uh, President Trump on stage, that it makes it a lot easier for people who might have been resistant to wearing a mask to actually doing it in order to protect their health and people that they love. But a lot of people are saying that they're going to be wearing masks normally during flu season and things like that. For people who didn't get COVID, it's been a year with remarkably little infection. Nobody 
got a cold. Flu season practically didn't happen, you know, so there's a lot to be said for wearing masks. And I think that they, that mask wearing was probably primary in terms of protecting the health for diseases that had nothing to do with COVID. So would you be in favor of, the, of, of people continuing with it? I think it's a good idea. For instance, when you're traveling on an airplane, if you're shopping over, you know, in malls and during Christmas season where it's packed and so on, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself against germs. You'd have to be aware of the fact that viruses and bacteria uh, spread differently. You know, remember early on in this pandemic, there was a lot of talk about surfaces and people were washing their groceries and stuff like that. Uh, well, you know, the truth is, Subway straps and tabletops can be sources of germs, but they're more likely cold germs than COVID-19. I guess in the, in the long run, I think maybe we'll have a, a deeper appreciation of the power of disease to change society and also to affect our health. Previous pandemics, like 1918, were essentially erased from human memory. And back in 1918, People died more commonly of, of infectious diseases. Two out of five babies never made it through the second year. So, you know, it was a very common experience to have people die of diseases. So maybe that's one reason, but 1918 was not remembered in the human consciousness. But I also think that people, when it's something that nature does, people are less inclined to think about it. I, I think it affects they are thinking about climate change, for instance. 1918, you had the war and you had the pandemic. And the pandemic killed even far more soldiers than the war did. But nobody remembered the pandemic. And there were immediately, you know, books written about the war and there were veterans that had meetings. And the war lingered forever in human consciousness. The pandemic floated right out of it. And there's no heroism in getting sick and dying from a virus. Maybe some shame attached to it. Uh, there's usually stigma that follows diseases. And so there are reasons why we forget these things. But by forgetting them, we repeat them. And that's my fear is that we might step past this and think that was then, but it's not going to happen in the future. The truth is, I think that COVID-19 is just a harbinger of what is to come. Was that, that fear of forgetting one of the things that made you want to personalise the book with, with these human stories of victims? I mean, there's a very, to me, almost the most moving was of Lorna Breen, yeah. who didn't die of COVID, but died yeah. through COVID, you could say. Yeah, these, when we count the fatalities of COVID-19, there are a lot of people who died because of it, but not of it. And Lorna Breen was a physician, an emergency room physician in New York. She, she was from Virginia and um, a very dynamic figure. And uh, early on, she got COVID and it really crushed her. Uh, you know, she was trying to do her work. She was actually trying to run two emergency rooms from her apartment while she was sick with COVID. And then one day she, she couldn't get out of the chair. And uh, her sister in Richmond enlisted a friend in Connecticut to pick her up and drive her to Philadelphia, another friend. So they, they got her home. She spent some time in a psych ward. And then when she got out, she killed herself. 
there's been a terrible toll on frontline workers. Many of them died of COVID, fewer in many cases than general population because they wore PPE. But doctor suicides, nurse suicides have been distressingly common because of this. And those people don't get counted in the statistics, but they'd be alive if it weren't for that disease. As a reporter working on this, you were obviously moved by the material. I mean, did you find yourself angry when writing this book? Well, yeah, I keep fairly careful control of my emotions when I'm writing. But the truth is, you know, what I discovered in this book, and maybe it was one of the things that was left out of the daily journalism that you were mentioning, there was this immense amount of unacknowledged grief. So many people had lost people. And on top of that, there was the dismay, the sadness at seeing our society fail so badly. Uh, I think there's a generalized sense of depression, not just in America, but you know, it, it, to see us f- stumble and fall in the face of you know, a disease that we had thought that we had taken care of, infectious diseases. And it was pretty clear that you know, nature still had some very stunning surprises in store for us. But the personal stories that I encountered There were a lot of tears, honestly, Sam, on my part as well as theirs. You know, when you're a reporter and you're hearing these stories and you know it's a privilege to be able to tell them, to be trusted by people who offer you the most meaningful moments in their lives. But also it it gets inside you. And so in, in a way, maybe you can hear in my voice that you can't, revisit those without having those emotions be present in some way. Now, the book has quite a sort of valedictory postscript where you say you think you're near near the end of a long and meaningful yeah. career. Do you think this is your last book? No, I don't. I, I, I wondered about writing that at the time. I'm 73. So, you know, the, the tables suggest that there probably is uh, an expiration date coming up, and I don't look forward to it. And I'm in good health, and I, I'm looking forward to my next project. But I've had a long career, and if you go on, this probably isn't so much for you. But when you go on to the internet and you have to fill out a form and you have fill out the, your age, what year were you born, and then your little table comes down, and you have to run down, you know, and it goes so far down. And I realize that I've. My life has encompassed more than a third of the history of the United States of America. And, uh, you know, a lot of history has taken... I'm the same age as Israel and Pakistan. Entire countries have developed a history. And so I, I can't look at those things without thinking, hmm, you're probably the only person that actually read that acknowledgement. But I just felt I wanted to say something about the career and, and I think the nobility of the profession which is he's so often derided, and yet it's a humble job. It's not like in the movies where you're in a, not for me anyway, in a gang of people charging after some senator, you know, with microphones in their mouth and that sort of thing. You no, know, you're out by yourself trying to enlist people to tell you their stories, and they're so evanescent. You know, the, the memories fade, people die, and yet what are we other than our stories? So you know, you have the opportunity to go 
find these stories, try to weave them into a meaningful narrative. And in some way, you create a kind of immortality, not so much for the person, but for the experience that they had. Well, I hope we go on doing it for many years yet. Lawrence Wright, thank you very much thank, for your time. Thank you, Sam. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk.